This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story. Australia has watched from the sidelines as America's Supreme Court, one decision at a time, has used its power to reshape American life. Today, we're bringing you a special episode of Politics Weekly, hosted by my colleague Jonathan Friedland. It's a really helpful, if somewhat frightening, insight into how the US Supreme Court reached a 6-3 conservative majority and whether it's possible for the court to keep its promise of equal protection to all Americans and what happens if it can't. It's Friday, the 8th of July. Jill Filipovich is a journalist based in New York who's also a lawyer and author. She recently wrote a piece for The Guardian which questions the very legitimacy of the Supreme Court. We've seen the Supreme Court really lose favour in the eyes of the American public. People increasingly think it's a politicised institution. In order for the court to be seen as a legitimate institution to be trusted, It has to be willing to uphold its own precedent, to be consistent, and to be honest, and to not appear to be an arm of either the Republican or the Democratic Party. And the court, I think, did finally put a nail in the coffin of its legitimacy. Let's remind ourselves of, of, of what the court was sort of, as it were, meant to be, how people initially, perhaps even going back to the framers of the Constitution, how Americans were meant to see the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been a lot of different things over the years. It is certainly intended to be apolitical. I'm not sure that that has ever been perfectly the case. But certainly the American public uh, has, has had the impression that the court is supposed to be a nonpartisan institution, that it's essentially supposed to be an institution that interprets laws, doesn't make laws, and that is often vested with the job of protecting, sometimes but not always, minority groups from the tyranny of the majority and making sure that the letter and spirit of the Constitution is followed. And there's all kinds of mechanisms that the design of the court has built into it to ensure that it floats in this kind of elevated realm above day-to-day politics. Supreme Court justices have lifetime appointments, and part of the justification for that is that they can't be voted out or pushed out for the way that they rule on cases, uh, which is intended to allow them the sort of freedom and ability to make unpopular but constitutionally justified rulings. The amount of money that justices are paid obviously cannot hinge on how they rule. And they're supposed to be appointed with the consent of the Senate, which is most of the time an entity that is made up of of Republicans and Democrats and whatever other political parties have existed or may exist uh, in the future. And so those are all mechanisms that are intended to make the court kind of above and outside of politics. I'm not sure that with this court, that's quite enough. And was there ever a time where the president who would nominate a judge and the Senate that would ratify that nomination would do so purely on the merits of the judge as a legal scholar, as a jurist, uh, where the, the only thing that really mattered was their ability to be a good judge, rather than the kind of more partisan appointments that I know we're going to go on to talk about and that have been a feature of the last few years? 
It's certainly true that judicial appointments and particularly Supreme Court appointments have grown ever more partisan and have become very, very contentious along partisan lines in the past few years. It did used to be that a judge's credentials were seen perhaps as more important than their ideology. But I'm not sure it's ever been the case that the Supreme Court was this kind of neutral entity where presidents and senators approve judges based solely on their qualifications. I mean, what I had in mind is some of the uh, big judges of recent years, you know, who were appointed by Republican presidents became pretty liberal figures on the court. I mean, just off the top of my head, John Paul Stevens, appointed by a Republican, Gerald Ford. He was very often in the liberal, often majority on the court. Uh, there were other people who were just, you couldn't always predict how they were going to go. Now, though, let's talk about how it is now with these, particularly with those three appointments uh, by Donald Trump. You see them as much more party political figures. What matters is not a judge's political views, but whether they can set aside those views to do what the law and the Constitution require. The three judges appointed by Donald Trump are, are right-wing radicals. Judge Neil Gorsuch, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. I think one thing that has really, really shaped not just the Supreme Court, but the entirety of the judiciary and, and the federal judiciary in particular has been the rise and the power of the Federalist Society, which is a conservative legal organization you know, that starts at the law school level, really breeding conservative legal theory, essentially telling kind of young lawyers in training how to approach these questions and what to think, and has what sort of functions as a conservative affirmative action network for judges, where conservative judges uh, that gain Federalist Society approval go through a mentorship network, uh, are directly connected to Republican politics, and have a much better chance of being appointed to the federal bench than even much more qualified moderate or liberal judges, or judges whose politics aren't clear. Uh, so what you wind up with are conservative judges who are much more radical, have much more support, and are essentially elevated to much higher positions of power, whether or not they're actually qualified. So there's this amazing, uh, to hear about this, this conservative pipeline of judges, this sort of feeder system, and they're going up and up and up, through rising through the ranks of the system. But also, the, it wasn't just the sort of political leanings of those three judges that has angered you and others. Um, it's also the circumstances of their elevation to the court, which goes to this question of legitimacy. Can you just talk us through what it was about the way these judges were, have found their place on the court, and indeed others, that you feel puts those particular judges, their legitimacy, in question. So, Neil Gorsuch should not be on the Supreme Court. Of the many powers and responsibilities that the Constitution vests in the presidency, few are more consequential than appointing a Supreme Court justice. As Barack Obama was winding down his uh, second term in office uh, in 2016, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died. 
And it should have been up to Obama to appoint a justice and for the Senate to consider and confirm that justice. And Obama selected Merrick Garland, who was extremely qualified, extremely well-respected, and a very moderate, not hyper-partisan judge. The next president, whoever that may be, is going to be the person who chooses the next Supreme Court justice. Mitch McConnell, who was the uh, leader of the Senate for the Republican Party, essentially blocked the ability of the Senate to even consider Garland's appointment. Part of the argument at the time was that, well, this is an election year. Voters are going to the polls in November, and it should be up to them to pick the president who picks the next Supreme Court justice. And Trump was put into the presidency and quite swiftly appointed a Supreme Court justice that frankly should have been a seat appointed by Obama. And then toward the end of Trump's term, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. A similar set of circumstances emerged where Ruth Bader Ginsburg died while Trump was in office. And again, it was an election year. And again, there was an argument, certainly, that you know, by the rules Republicans had set out four years earlier, that it should have been up to the American people to select the next president, and that president would appoint a Supreme Court justice. And that's not what happened. Suddenly, suddenly they turned their own argument on its head. Suddenly it wasn't uh, the case that you couldn't pick a Supreme Court justice in an election year, even weeks before an election. Suddenly they found a whole new rationale. Exactly. I understand my Democratic friends are, seem to be terribly persuaded by their version of all of this. All I can tell you is I was there, I know what happened, and my version is totally accurate. And so Amy Coney Barrett was the person who was selected to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Supreme Court seat. Uh, and her confirmation hearing was incredibly rushed because the president obviously knew that there was some chance he wasn't going to win in November. And so that's how we have, you know, two extremely radical judges appointed by Donald Trump sitting on the court. You know, there's a, a third Trump judge on the court as well, Brett Kavanaugh, whose hearings were also marred by accusations of sexual assault and whose background uh, did not come under the kind of scrutiny that one might expect for a sitting justice on the Supreme Court. Just in terms of how the court goes about its de its decision making, yes, you've talked to us about how the judges get there. But once they are there, there was this notion that once they're sort of cloistered in their chambers, they put aside the circumstances of their own installation on the court. They check any political loyalties or affinities they had at the door and approach it in the cool, level-headed ways of the judiciary. And I, I've even read just recently in the, in the last few days that there was a tradition where justices before would almost deliberately go against the views of the president that had appointed them or against the grain of public opinion almost deliberately to signal to the American public that the Supreme Court was not just another branch of politics, but was somehow an, a more independent body. Before we talk about how far they've come from that now, can you give us examples from the history of the court of, of those kinds of decisions where they took their own stand that was not necessarily politically popular? Sure. So, I mean, even in, in pretty recent history, you saw, for example, Anthony Kennedy uh, write the opinion 
in the Supreme Court case that legalized same-sex marriage. And you know, Anthony Kennedy was appointed by a Republican president. You know, he was never a, a radical right-wing judge, but he was certainly a, a conservative judge. Uh, you've seen it in abortion cases. Sandra Day O'Connor was a Reagan appointee, and she was someone who, again and again, sided with the you know so-called liberal majority on, for example, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was a 1992 case that was a big challenge to Roe v. Wade and sort of was one moment where a lot of folks were concerned the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe. And so in, in both of those cases, you saw Republican-appointed nominees really not supporting the Republican Party line on two of the most salient issues for the religious right. And, and that's partly what gave people some comfort when the this trio of judges under Donald Trump were appointed. There were Democrats, including in the Senate, who thought, well, these judges, yep, yeah, I know Donald Trump's appointed them, but they might not overturn Roe v. Wade. Just talk about the fact that they have done that despite what they said in their hearings. And there are some Democrats who are saying that these judges who are now on the Supreme Court maybe were not fully candid with the senators who ratified their nomination. Joe Manchin, the Democrat of West Virginia, writes, I am deeply disappointed that the Supreme Court has voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. This, this part seems to be of note. I trusted Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh when they testified under oath that they also believed Roe v. Wade was settled legal precedent. So I think that those Democratic senators are feigning ignorance. You know, feminist groups, pro-choice groups were saying from the get-go, these three judges will overturn Roe versus Wade. That was clear from their previous statements. It was clear from past jurisprudence. You know, these are judges, uh, at least some of them, who had some record of statements of rulings on similar questions. And it was very clear what they believed and where their minds were. You know, that said, certainly all three justices appointed by Trump did stand up in front of the Senate. And while, you know, these are not stupid people, they were, I think, quite weaselly in their phrasing, did give the impression that they would uphold Roe v. Wade, that they would uphold other important Supreme Court precedent, whether that's Roe, whether that's cases around contraception or same-sex marriage. But from the get-go, we, we knew what these folks were going to do. And the people who voted to confirm them voted either with that knowledge or, or they should have had that knowledge. I mean, one part of me just thinks or wonders if Look, the Republicans saw the rules of this game, including the Senate, including presidents who haven't won the popular vote, and they, over a period of years, even decades, methodically set about taking over this court. And now they've done it to the point where they can overturn Roe v. Wade. Did Democrats just get outplayed here that they did, were not as brutal, they were not as ruthless in playing the, the system? And I'm particularly thinking even of voters who... Republican voters we know made it a massive priority to get a Republican in the White House, no matter even if they hated them, as some felt about Trump, because they wanted that person appointing judges. And liberals and Democrats did not feel the same way about, for example, getting Hillary Clinton in the White House so that she could appoint, um, it would have been three judges, potentially. Have Democrats just not taken this as seriously as Republicans? Yeah, I think that's right. Republicans have played the long game. They have played hardball. Democrats haven't taken it as seriously. And, you know, the, the reality is it's much more motivating to fight something than it is, I think, to maintain a status quo. 
you know, that said, another thing that the Republican Party has done is has not just been to maximize their advantage according to the rules, but to pretty steadily change and erode the rules to work in their favor. And, you know, the Supreme Court uh, struck down a few really important parts of the Voting Rights Act that happened in a, in a case called Shelby v. Holder County a few years back. And since then, what we've seen are Republican-led states passing laws that make it much more difficult for Black voters, for Hispanic voters, and for poor voters to cast their ballots. So in tandem with that, we've also seen the Supreme Court in their Citizens United decision essentially say that corporate money is speech. And so the American political system is no longer one in which it's one person, one vote, and voters determine the outcome of elections. That's how we think it works, not really how it works. The Roe v. Wade decision naturally has got all of the attention, but there has been a a series of decisions coming out of this uh, new look Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, your your piece for for The Guardian about the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court came out after there'd been discussion about the Supreme Court decision essentially robbing New York of the right to protect itself with some new gun safety legislation. What's the pattern as you see it? and, 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 And what are the other examples that are leaping out at you? Sure. So the pattern we're seeing from this court is the total abandonment of any kind of intellectual consistency, any kind even of consistency when it comes to conservative jurisprudential ideology, and instead just an embrace of a pretty extreme right-wing agenda. And one example of this is, is the New York gun case that you brought up, which was addressing a law that has been on the books in New York for a very, very long time, which essentially says that, or said, that if somebody wants to carry a concealed weapon out in public to the grocery store, on the subway, to their child's school, they need to demonstrate some need for that. And what the Supreme Court basically said is that states have no right to make laws like that one. This really flies in the face of a longtime conservative claim to states' rights, which they used to justify slavery, which they have used in an argument in favor of overturning Roe and throwing the question back to the states. And apparently that (laughs) states' rights only extend as far as a woman's uterus. And now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, we're going to see other cases that were decided along similar lines, I think, come up for challenge. And those cases include the access to contraception, uh, the right of two consenting adults of the same sex to have sex, uh, and rights to same-sex marriage. I mean, people will be listening to this just shaking their heads in disbelief that it's come to this point where the highest court in the land could start taking away rights that people all around the world now just are, you know, take for granted. And they'll also be thinking, okay, so what is uh, the majority in America, the kind of more liberal majority, because numerically it is, on these issues, what can they do about it? So, you know, beyond waiting another 50 years for things to turn around and for Democrats to go through the process of working their way up through the legal system and eventually being appointed for long 30-year, 40-year lifetime terms on the court, short of that, um, what can be done about this? With a stronger majority in the Senate, Democrats could expand the Supreme Court. 
And while that sounds perhaps radical on its face, the reality is that the Supreme Court has not always been nine justices. It has changed in size and makeup throughout its history. You know, Joe Biden has so far refused to call for expanding the Supreme Court, which I think is a mistake. But that's one possibility. Abolishing the filibuster. That's the procedural mechanism which essentially grants veto powers to the minority in the Senate. And so it means you have to get, in effect, a super majority of 60 votes in the Senate to get anything through, which means Democrats often just can't get through change. And you're saying there that would be one thing if you dropped that hurdle, lowered that hurdle, then Democrats, even with just 50 votes, plus one from the vice president, they could start getting through some of these reforms that so many people feel are necessary. Right, exactly. Then finally, in this one, it hasn't gotten all that much attention, but I I think it's still quite important, uh, is extending statehood to Washington, D.C. Several hundred thousand people live there. It's a larger population than, you know, say, Wyoming. And yet they have no representation in the U.S. Senate. And so granting statehood to D.C. would be a a, a democratic move, um, small d democratic move. And, you know, would also make sure that the Senate is actually fully representative of of all American people. And maybe Puerto Rico while you're at it. As a closing thought on this, before we ask you our traditional what else question on the podcast, if this doesn't happen, what is it going to do to America to have this highest court be out of step with what all the polling uh, and uh, tells us is the direction and, 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 and preference of modern America? I think what is particularly scary about how we're seeing the U.S. shift is that this really is one of the first cases in my lifetime. Um, It's not the only case, but it's probably the most significant that has so wildly and significantly stripped a civil right from American citizens. It also puts the U.S. in a, a minority category globally. What we've seen is that as countries democratize and as they become more representative, rights for women expand, and that includes abortion rights. We've seen rollbacks of women's rights more broadly in countries like Russia, Hungary, Poland, and the U.S. is now in that category. And so I think when you see a decision like this one, you know, in tandem with other rollbacks of democratic norms in the U.S., you know, of which there were many during the Trump years, at the same time as our House of Representatives is currently holding hearings on an attempted coup to undermine the results of a free and fair American election. I think when you put all of that together, it really portends quite a scary future for the United States. And I think we're in an incredibly fragile time where our current leaders need to take these broad threats to democracy seriously and need to start reining in the individuals and institutions that would undermine the American project. Jill, we always ask our guests on the show a what else question, something different. This week, you were just mentioning there the explosive testimony uh, in the Senate as a former aide, fairly junior in the White House hierarchy, Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Donald Trump knew on January the 6th that the protesters had weapons, that that didn't trouble him. At one point, incredibly, tried to take the wheel of the car that was driving him so that he could go to the Capitol. It was only the Secret Service that prevented him doing that. Do you think these, you know, eye-popping revelations that have come this week, do they change the weather at all? I hope so. They certainly should. 
you know, again, the U.S. is at a, a really dangerous tipping point right now. And these hearings, the January 6th committee, is our effort to try uh, to both tell the truth about what happened, to shed light on what, what went down that day in one of the darkest days of American history, and to hopefully hold perpetrators accountable. And that testimony, I think, is kind of one more big drop in, in a bucket full of horrifying stories and anecdotes and evidence. And you know, I, I can only hope that it does shift uh, our current reality. But I do think for that to happen, we're going to need more people within the Republican Party, within the Republican establishment, taking this seriously, speaking out, you know, and not saying as many of them are now, one thing in private while they say another in public in an attempt to stay in power. That was Jill Filipovich speaking with Politics Weekly America host Jonathan Friedland. The producer of this episode was Danielle Stevens and the executive producer was Max Sanderson. Additional sound design was done by Joe Coning. I'm Gabrielle Jackson and we'll be back with a new episode of Full Story for you on Monday. We'll see you then.